This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey there, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. Today, my guest is Nancy French. She's an incredible writer who has written books with people like Olympian Sean Johnson, Senator Ben Sass, Sean Lowe from The Bachelor, and most recently, Alice Marie Johnson, the woman who gained notoriety after Kim Kardashian rallied for her release from a life sentence in prison for a nonviolent drug offense. Nancy is also wife to David French, the man who was known for almost running for president on the independent ticket in 2016, and is also a prominent lawyer, political writer, and speaker. In today's conversation, I talk with Nancy about her writing career, and she gives us a little peek into working with Kim Kardashian on her latest effort. We also talk about what prompted Nancy to write an op-ed for the Washington Post in 2016 called what it's like to experience the 2016 election as both a conservative and a sex abuse survivor. She shares candidly today about going from being a hardcore conservative Republican to ultimately abandoning the party to become an independent, and what it's been like for her family as they navigate a weird world in which they no longer share political opinions with many of their friends. Her political affiliation change came at a cost as she had to shift to new clients and detach a bit from the world of Republican politics. We also talked today about the adoption of her daughter from Ethiopia and why Nancy believes there's nothing wrong with getting married when you're 20 and in love. She tells us the story of how she met her husband, David, and I love it. This is one of my favorite parts of our chat. As usual, everyone that's listening, when I talk about controversial stuff on here, I mean no disrespect. I welcome listeners of all political beliefs, and I'm glad you're here. Enjoy this episode with Nancy French. All right, Nancy, welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm so glad to be talking with you today. Thanks for having me. This is great. So what does Nancy French do on a busy Monday? What is your schedule like today? Um, I'm interviewing for various book projects for some reason, and I'm very thankful. Um, I have a lull in my projects. I just turned in a book proposal, and so I got about six requests for books. And so that process is pretty crazy. It's sort of like speed dating. You, um, you know, get on the phone with an agent and if you pass muster with the agent, then you get on the call with the celebrity and then you have to see if the celebrity likes you or if you like them and, you know, see what the topic of the book is and see if it, you know, goes along well with your values and the types of things you want to write about. And then the next process is then if they like you and you like them, then they talk to your agent. And then there's the financial wrangling. It's just like a really crazy, strange process because it's so, I'm a ghostwriter. And if you um, get connected with a ghostwriter, you really have to have chemistry and a, mm. ni- a nice relationship other than just like, it's not like writing an autobiography or, or rather a, a biography of a person. You have to be completely connected with them and talk to them and get their you know, their vibe. And so anyway, it's a really weird project. So today I have a couple of those interviews. So yeah, you said it was like speed dating. So does that start with you're talking to someone that's connected with them, and then you decide to talk with them based on that initial conversation with an agent? Yeah, usually they contact me, like they hear me speak, or they read a book that has my name on it, or they read an article that has my name on it. So um, thankfully, I've had a lot of interest, uh, you know, thankful for all of the gigs that I get. So, yeah, so it was pretty fun, actually. So when you write one of these, ghostwrite one of these memoirs, which I like that you, on your memoirs, you have your name on the cover still. I know a lot of ghostwriters, sometimes you just don't ever see their name. And I thought, I, if I ever do that, that I thought, I, I'm going to do it like Nancy, because it's a ghostwriting, but it's like you still want a, a little bit of credit for all the work that you're doing, right? Yeah, you know, it's weird. I have sort of switched on that. Um, there's, It's very controversial, actually, because... Um, oh, really? Yeah, it's like this big, deep well of like moral um, conversation surrounding it, and mm. and at some and I think this is what it is. I think this is why people get upset about the name credit versus not the name credit. 
if you're a famous person who is a famous writer and you have a ghostwriter, it feels, or a famous intellectual with a, a ghostwriter, it feels different if you're like a celebrity, like on Dancing with the Stars or something, and you need a book out by the time the show comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people say that if you're a famous, like pastor, for example, um, and you are, you have a ghostwriter that you really, really should acknowledge the person on the cover. And there are various ways of acknowledgement. There's on the cover, inside the first page, in the acknowledgements. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. And it's all very heavily meted out. Um, you know, the agents really hammered out. So it's very interesting. And I think this is what there. there's no, I think it's fine not to be acknowledged. Um, and I think it's fine to be acknowledged. Um, but I think what the big problem is, is if celebrities pretend that they can do everything. So not only can you be the governor of a state or participate in the Olympics or whatever it is. Also on the side, I'm writing this huge book. And I think it's like more of the sin of not pride, but like idolatry that Mm -hmm. you want people to think that you're doing all of these things. And so I think it's best to be acknowledged, but sometimes like, as a professional ghostwriter, my real, I love ghostwriting. Like I thought I was going to give it up, um, recently due to like the recent political shift towards acrimony. Um, because I was doing a lot of political books, I've sort of switched to do more entertainment books, but, um, I thought I might give it up because I really want to write novels. So I wrote a novel that I'm going to pitch after the year, um, to publishers. And so hopefully that will be bought, but I still love to ghostwrite. Um, and sometimes you have, you know, like it might be distracting to have my name on the cover with someone who might be in a totally different field. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you Google my name, all kinds of political stuff comes up. Well, not everybody wants that on their book, if that makes sense. Right. And, and so I'm trying to figure out myself, like I, cause I, at, when I was getting started, I really, really cared about cover credit. Um, because it would help my career and advance my further opportunities. But now, for some reason, I don't care as much about it. And there's this great quote by Ronald Reagan that says, it's amazing what you can get accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. And, <laughs> so good. Yeah. And I and I don't, I can't eat, you know, breakfast on credit. I have to have money. And so as long as I'm getting paid, I feel less like angsty about the cover credit. Interestingly, the the more advanced I get in my career, the less I care about that. And then counterintuitively, the more advanced I get in my career, the authors sometimes like to have my name on the proposal um, and associated with their project because it helps sell it because I've had Mm -hmm. so many great uh, bestsellers. So anyway, it's sort of weird, but I could go either way on it. No, yeah, and I think that's that's such a kind of a fascinating world that most of us don't know anything about. And you've done what, like 10 of them now? I, I've probably done 15, 20. 15. Yeah, so that's how many aren't listed with my name on it. Well, and for those listening, a uh, couple of just a couple of people that Nancy's written with is Olympian Sean Johnson, Sean Lowe from The Bachelor, Senator Ben Sass, and your most recent one was Alice Marie Johnson, who's the woman who gained a lot of notoriety after Kim Kardashian rallied for her release from a life, a life sentence from prison for a nonviolent drug offense. Now, how did you end up getting hooked up with her? Because that's a pretty, that was a very high profile story that, you know, it, it happened really fast. Right. It was crazy. What a a Cinderella story too. I mean, it's better than a Cinderella story. Um, I think with that one, they contacted me because they had the same publisher as one of the Palin books. And so Mm. the um, editor was familiar with me. And so um, I just got a call and, I heard that story and the more I read about it, the more amazing it was. Alice Marie Johnson is amazing. Um, and I loved, uh, I loved hanging out with her and getting to know her. The good thing about ghostwriting is that you get to know people so well. Um, and with Alice, you know, she just gotten out of prison. She'd been in prison for 21 years. So she had, didn't even have a house. So we have this little place to stay here. So she stayed with us for, you know, like a week or so. And, um, at the end so that we could finish it up and she's just lovely. So with every book, I sort of take away different lessons from the people and, uh, Alice, the lesson that I took from her is to have faith because she always believed that she would get out. 
So, which is interesting. Really? Yeah. Uh, did you have any visits from Kim Kardashian? <laughs> no, you know, we had to do all of our work on the phone, regrettably, because mm-hmm. it was right when her um, baby was arriving. Mm, so, yeah. Yeah. So, regrettably. But, yeah, what a great... I'm so proud of what um, Kim Kardashian West is doing in the criminal justice reform world. And yeah, um, I love what Kanye is doing. And I'm just I'm just very proud of what all the work that they're doing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing watching both of them. I mean, they're kind of both doing different things. And it's been this incredible cultural phenomenon that we've seen in the past couple of years. Um, How do you think Kim specifically has been able to do so much and have such an impact? Well, I think she has a really kind heart and I think she's very smart. Um, yeah, I think she's just, she has a lot of attention to detail. I think that she's been given so much and she's using it for good more than, you know, most people would. Uh, she's, you know, very clever. She's and she's asking the right people to help her. So like with the uh, Johnson case, you know, she reached out to some of the original dream team from the OJ Simpson her OJ Simpson's connections uh, mm-hmm. through her dad. And, uh, you know, she just asks the right people. She puts her money where her mouth is and she's very compassionate. Yeah. Well, so I was going to ask in terms of how much time you spend with these people. So you said Alice Marie Johnson, she was like living with you for a week, uh, more out of necessity, it sounds like. But how much, how many hours do you spend talking to these people? Oh, it man. seems like you'd have a to lot. spend so much time with them. And do you go, I mean, do you go to like childhood homes? Like what is your process for making sure that you're creating this really realistic version of their life? Yeah, it's crazy. So I recently did a book or I got hired to do a book. It's not out yet, but um, it's a famous media personality and he wanted, wanted to do a book. So when I got the deal, all of a sudden I was on a plane to go to Michigan where he was filming a movie and then I went to San Francisco where his childhood home is and I got to meet his parents and we got to do a lot of fun things there and then we went to New York where he has another house and I got to hang out with him uh, you know see his apartment and see where he worked and um, to do things like that so it's like a lot of really and that was in one week Um, and so you just live their lives. So like whatever they're doing, you're doing. So if they're going to the symphony, you're going to the symphony. Mm -hmm. Um, So like I very, my most intense book project was with the, 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 a Palin related project where I went to Alaska and I lived with them in their house with Sarah Palin in her house for a a month. Oh my gosh. I know in the middle of February in Wasilla. So it was so cold, but, um, but yeah, (laughs) Everything is different. I, every time I talk to a new client, I always say, this is not a threat, but I did live for a month with a client once. Um, but you just have to get <laughs> You're to like, that's how serious I am about this project. Yeah. And I can write very quickly and I just, you know, but I, and I can sort of comprehend people's lives. I can sort of, I don't know, like I, I just, for some reason, I love other people's stories and I'm very naturally curious. And so I love to sit down with people and sort of absorb you know, their stories. So anyway, it's just fun. Do you record like, do you record hours of conversation? Yes. Okay. That's, that must be hard to go back through. Now, do you get that transcribed or how does that work? Yeah. Most of the time, if there's money in the budget, um, I have a transcriptionist who just does all of it. And so that's very, very, very helpful because otherwise it's, it's, it's just difficult to, um, you know, to wade through the audio, but there is this amazing thing called an echo pen, E-C-H-O. And you can have this notebook and it, like, if I was talking to you, I might say, well, Erica went to high school here. And then you might tell me about being bullied in high school or your first guest or whatever happened in high school. And then later, even if it's two years later, I can go back to my handwritten notes and take my pen and touch the note that says Erica's high school life. And then the speaker on the pen, because it's a recording device, will play back what you told me. Oh, that's cool. It's like a search, like a word search, but audio yeah. search. Yeah, it's really crazy. So that is very helpful. And that's like really old technology. I've had that pen forever, but uh, it's amazing. So that that helps a great deal. Okay, well, I'm going to back up just a second because you kind of jumped into the writing. But um, for those listening, we're speaking to Nancy French today. And so you are a ghostwriter of memoirs. You're a mom. You also write op-eds. You'll find some of Nancy's op-eds online if you search her. Um, you're also a wife to someone who makes a few political waves himself, David French. 
And you guys live way out in the country in Tennessee. Is that right? You know, we recently moved about a year and a half ago from Columbia, Tennessee, home of the um, mule. It's the mule capital of the world. Um, okay. To um, Franklin, Tennessee, which is, you know, right here in Music City. And we did that to accommodate our youngest daughter's um, educational needs. She has special educational needs. So she is at a wonderful school here in Nashville. So we moved her whole family um, up here so that she could go to the school. And, and we're very thankful. She's thriving. Um, and everything is going really well in Franklin, Tennessee now. Okay, awesome. And so of those roles that I listed, um, and maybe more that I haven't, what are some of your, what are your favorite roles in life? What do you love about your life? Um, I love being a mother. For some reason, when I became a mother, it feels like everything sort of um, came into focus for me. Before mm -hmm. I had children, this sounds so weird, and people don't believe it, but I was really lazy. Like I would like be in my pajamas until David came home from work from his law firm and I would hurriedly like change out of my pajamas. I'd watch like Rosie O'Donnell during the day and I'd find a sunspot on the floor and sort of gradually move across the room. Like, I'm not even kidding. I, I don't even know why I just wasn't like an adult. I didn't adult. Well, and were you then, writing at that time for a living? No, I was a three-time college dropout at that time. Okay. So I just, I don't know. And I'm still a three-time college dropout. David teases me and says that I'm very ambitious now and I might drop out of more. But um, I, I just, I don't know. Like for some reason, I was just sort of like directionless. And then I had a, a baby. Um, Camille was my first one. And then I have all. Naomi. And for some reason, motherhood like clarified my life. And so I, I loved it. Like I, I mean, it was very hard. I'm not really good with like infants and I didn't like brush my teeth or shower at the same day or the same week, basically for like years. <laughs> but I don't know, I couldn't get all the details right, but I just loved it. It was like, there was something about, about it that sort of was transformative to me. So, and David at that time, he used to be working in, working as a lawyer. He worked for, um, where, where did he work again? I know. I just can't. Oh no, he's worked everywhere. It's literally impossible to trace the guy. He, okay. We lived in Kentucky where he did, you know, all kinds of different law, including equine law. Um, and he worked in New York where he did all kinds of different, you know, you can imagine Manhattan law firm life. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, he he worked in Nashville, Tennessee, at a law firm. He um, later taught at Cornell Law School. He at one point was the head of the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education in Philadelphia, where he did free speech cases. Mm -hmm. So he's done literally everything. Yeah, I'm like it's driving me crazy. There was there was one other place that I was like thinking on the top of my where he did like religious freedom work. Oh, the Alliance Defending That's Freedom. That's it. Yes. I'm like, yes. I knew it started with an A. <laughs> yes. Okay. So now how did you guys meet? He was, um, he went to a college in Nashville called David Lipscomb University. And it is, and I, it's a Christian college. And I, see, I'm not painting myself in the most glorious light here, but <laughs> this is very honest. I was just sort of a jerk when I was younger and I was directionless and I didn't really, I wanted to go to college, but I definitely didn't want to go to this specific Christian college. And so I was, um, I was sort of cantankerous when the admissions people called me. And so they would call and they would say, oh my gosh, are you so excited about coming to Lipscomb? And my parents really wanted me to go to Lipscomb. It was basically my only option because of the affiliation with the Church of Christ, which is what I was when, when I grew up. And I would always give terse, inaccurate, jerky responses. So they would say, are you excited about going to Lipscomb? And one week I might say, well, I would be excited about going to Lipscomb, except I want to go to a good medical school and you can't get into a good medical school unless you go to a different college than Lipscomb. I would just make up stuff. I didn't want to go to medical school. Oh, so you school. weren't planning to go to medical school. No, I was just being a complete jerk. And so one time they called and I said, I don't want to go to Lipscomb because I want to go to a good law school and you can't get into a good law school from Lipscomb. And which, and so the guy said, oh, you want to go to law school? Well, my friend David French just graduated from here, and he's at Harvard Law School, 
is that good enough for you? Oh my gosh. I was like, oh no, I was thinking about Harvard. I mean, it was one of my schools. I don't know. You know, like I was totally, he called me out. So this is just like the recruiter guy from the school? Yeah. And so I was a senior in high school and David was a 1L at at law school. And so Uh he, as a favor to this admissions person who probably, I've never asked him that, but the admissions guy probably was like, we've got this kid who is so arrogant. Um, Will you please talk to her? I don't know what the guy said, but David um, was just very kind to his alma mater and he would frequently call prospective students. And so he called me. So as a 1L, and I was a senior in high school. And at the time, I lived in Paris, Tennessee, home of the world's biggest fish fry. And um, I didn't know anything about Harvard. We didn't have the internet. We were, you know, we didn't have a ton of money. And so I went to the library during the week that I had to prepare for this call with this Harvard person. And I, like, looked up books about Harvard. I pretend, you know, I didn't even know how to spell Harvard. I was just being a jerk. So when he finally called me, um, you know, like I was so enamored by him and I thought he was so great, but I mean, he was much older and I didn't meet him in person for several years later. But when we met, I remembered obviously this conversation and we met on the sidewalk and it was several years later. I was a junior at um, Lipscomb and I had actually gone to the school and he had graduated from Harvard and was representing the college in a constitutional case. And we met on the sidewalk and he asked me out on the spot and we got married very quickly afterwards, like within like three months and we barely knew each other. So, and it was so crazy. So we, that's 20, almost 24 years ago. Were anybody's parents upset about this? Yeah. Everybody was mad. Everybody was (laughs) like having interventions and you know, my mother still to this day calls him the rank stranger. She's like, you're marrying this rank stranger. Uh, but funny. It, it's a good story now. Well, what made you, what made you so sure about him? I don't know. I didn't really, I don't, I just, he's great. Like if you ever spend time with him, he's just really great. He's fun. And he's, I agree. I think he's and, really great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, yeah. And I, I didn't really like, I, I, it was sort of spontaneous and, yeah, it was like. So, he, how old he, were you? Like twenty-two. He proposed when I was twenty, and we got married like three months later when I was twenty-one. So, uh-huh. yeah, it was just like you know all of the all of the things that you're not supposed to do, and of course, I did drop out of college. Um, so, you know, everybody, it was like there were a lot of different um, issues with, uh, you know, every all of the things that people say happen. You know, oh, you can't you can't get married because you'll drop out of college and. Or you can't get married because you have to be financially independent, or you can't get married because you have to do you have to know yourself mm-hmm. and you know, know who you are before you get married. And I just don't think that's true. I feel like I don't feel like I'm the same person as I was four years ago. Right. Um, I just feel like you I don't know, if you're committed to marriage and you get married, you stay married. You know, like it's not that easy. And I know everybody has different situations and problems. But um, anyway, I'm very thankful. Well, that probably came in handy when it, I mean, didn't your daughter recently get married and she's pretty young? Yeah, she did. And we're like, we believe that the culture always tells you, you have to do certain things before you get married. And I just don't think it's true. Yeah. And I think it's also like, for me, I enjoyed discovering the world with David French like he's really Mm -hmm. he's really great and he's fun to be with and I can't imagine wanting to delay that for arbitrary reasons right like getting a college degree or and and I know that college degrees are important um but I just don't think they're as important as the culture demands us you know they say you have to put your education above your marriage or you have to put your financial stability above or before your marriage or, you know, and I just don't necessarily think that's true. I think we delay adulthood mm-hmm. un- unnecessarily. And yeah, and I don't think college is that big of a deal either. I feel like it's sort of like the new high school because everyone goes to college. <laughs> and so true. you have to have the college degree and then you usually have to have a post-college degree. Um, I'm speaking as someone with neither, with no degrees. My terminal degree was Henry County High School in 1993. Um, So, (laughs) I mean, take all of this with a grain of salt. But I just feel like marriage is super important. And I feel like we should start valuing it um, 
you know, whenever an opportunity comes up. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who's super young should get married or that you should wait. You know, like, I don't think that there's one universal rule, but I do think I'm sort of annoyed at the culture for, like, scolding you and telling telling everyone that they have to do certain things first. I just don't necessarily think that's true. So were you guys surprised when Camille told you she was engaged? Or did her did her fiance or her husband now ask in advance for permission? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, he is we he has a we have a wonderful son-in-law. He's if you designed a kid in <laughs> a lab to marry your daughter, you would not even That's think, awesome. think of this guy. He's so amazing. Like he's he's so far exceeds any expectation you might have for a son-in-law. He's so great. Um, so anyway, yeah, we're very, well, that's awesome. we, we weren't surprised and we're very thankful for them and they're so lovely. Um, I don't think all kids should get married, you know, in their early twenties or, but, uh, I think it's, um, really nice if you can do it, you know, yeah. you don't come into the marriage with a lot of their relationship baggage, baggage. And, uh, and also it's not the worst thing in the world to be poor. You know, right. pe- people are always like, oh, you should get financially established because, um, being poor puts such a strain on your relationship. It really doesn't. You don't have to have a lot of stuff. It's not the worst yeah, thing in the world. Yeah, if you don't have a kid, especially. <laughs> yeah, it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we're, we're just very thankful for, you know, our family and our yeah. new son-in-law. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to back up. One question I forgot to ask you when we were talking about the memoirs is, do you have a dream collaboration? Interesting. Or I, two. <laughs> oh, I would love to do Kanye's book. Mm. Uh, over the course that'd be of, amazing yeah, yeah because his spiritual trajectory has been so interesting I would love to to hear more about it from him mm-hmm. and uh, just to write that down I think that's just really crazy and interesting and awesome and I, I would love to dig into that, that over the course of my life it, like at one point I want like Hillary Clinton the truth serum um, mm-hmm. I would love to hear her story. Oh my gosh. If she would tell the truth, it would be so amazing to hear that. Oh, like yeah. what? But, uh, yeah, but I, and then at one point I think I wanted to do Kevin Durant when he was at the OKC, uh-huh. uh, cause I love basketball and you know, I, I just, it always changes. But right now I'm obsessed with Kanye's spiritual trajectory and his Jesus is King album. Well, it's out there now. So, and you, you have the connection, so maybe it'll happen. (laughs) I'm saying it right now. You're saying it, it's out there. Um, so to go back to a little bit more recent days. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the past few years politically, like you do the ghost writing, but you also are in a family that is involved in politics, um, with what David does and just your own personal writing. So in 2016, um, David was actually someone was pushing for him to run for president on the independent ticket, uh, which was pretty crazy news. I was at the time I was working at national review with David. And so it was like, a little bit crazy there for a day when that came out. It was really Bill Crystal that was pushing it. Can you tell us about that experience and what that was like when that even came to your front door to think about? Well, we had moved to New York for the summer. And I mean, it's just so crazy to even like talk about this because it's so, mm-hmm. you know, how many people have the when your husband almost ran for president story. But <laughs> yes, seriously, it's weird. But we so we, I'd taken, because my oldest daughter was about to be a senior in high school. And so I wanted them to live in New York because every time, because we lived in this very rural, um, you know, place out in the middle of nowhere. There were mule farms everywhere. I mean, like it was just d- sort of desolate and I love it. Love it. I love rural America. Mm-hmm. But um, I wanted them also to experience New York, but not New York when you're on vacation, New York, like real New York. So, cause it's very hard to live in Manhattan. It's so expensive. You've hemorrhage cash every time you walk out the door. And I want, so I got this place in Manhattan and it wasn't like, I mean, it was what we could afford uh, and maybe a little more than we could afford, but it still wasn't great. Like it was, there was no doorman. There was no washer and dryer. They had a washer and dryer in the bottom of the building that, I think they shared the washer and dryer area with like this Thai restaurant. So like you go down there and there's all these like people changing clothes for their shifts. There's like stacks of potatoes above it. You know, it's like this very poorly air conditioned apartment with sun that blares in and a kitchen that's practically non-existent, but it was just fun. You know, like that's, 
if you're living in New York, you don't have a kitchen, you don't have your wash and dryer. It's just hard. And so I got that place for the month. I mean, for the summer and we had Hamilton tickets and, you know, I just wanted to, oh, cool. yeah, it was just, it was, so, so we're in New York and everybody thinks that we were in New York because David had decided to run for president, but that was completely <laughs> not true. And so Bill Crystal calls and, um, float, he doesn't, I don't think he immediately floats the idea to David. I think he just sort of like, they went to dinner and they got to know each other and, and at the time, this was before the GOP establishment had gotten behind Trump. So that it seemed mm-hmm. like there was still some wiggle room back then. And then through some crazy circumstance, the news broke that it was David. And I was with Naomi, my daughter, and I think my kids, or maybe they'd, they'd gone somewhere else. But um, I was with them when the, when the Washington, I think it was the Washington Post called and they said, we have confirmed uh we have rumors that we've heard rumors that uh, david french is thinking about running for president can you confirm this and i was like completely shocked because so you didn't know at all at that point well at that time he had uh the the guys had been talking to him about it privately and they had gone to this vermont farm to discuss the options and i was still in new york but the news broke before they intended it to break and so mm. and because david obviously decided not to do it but he is you know a veteran whenever people call on him to serve his country he he does it but he was at least considering it so Mm -hmm. it was just one of these moments where I was like oh no this is not good and I and I was trying to be like evasive but also I didn't want to be dishonest because if you're trying to run as the ethical alternative to Trump you don't want to start it off by lying so anyway I don't know what I said but I grabbed Naomi's hand and we went back to our, you know, crummy little apartment. Well, by the time we got back to our apartment, there was an, uh, a film crew there. Oh, my and, gosh. Yeah. And I didn't have a doorman because I was not anticipating, you know, you don't ever in the panoply of things that might happen yeah. on your vacation. Your husband accidentally almost running for president was not one of them. <laughs> and so I didn't have a doorman. I couldn't find my keys. My hands were shaking. They were filming us. You know, like I hadn't, you know, anyway, I wasn't prepared for the moment. And so I, th- th- so then we had to, because David was still in Vermont and he was still thinking about it, it, you know, he ultimately decided not to. We had to move from that place because the media had already found it. Um, and I had to talk to the film crew that was out there. Um, we had to leave this unsecure place. And then we had to go to this other place that some donor was paying for, which was way beyond our budget. Very expensive place with security and all this. And so then we were on like Park Avenue with this very fancy place with security and then David was like, yeah, I don't want to do this um, because at, by that time, the GOP establishment after, I don't know if they realized there was a potential third party pre- threat or if they were going to get behind Trump either way. But Paul Ryan and the GOP establishment got behind Trump that very week mm-hmm. um, and David decided not to do it. So then we were in this Park Avenue place that we could not afford and then we'd already given up the other location and it was just, it was really awful. Like it was like one of those things where I had this, you know, like you make all these plans for your children, like, okay, the best case scenario is to live in New York and to see how hard it is and to experience the city and to see some shows and to go to church and to, you know, and then all of a sudden you're like in this panic mode and reporters and then you're in this place. So we basically, called short everything we canceled everything and went back to the mule capital of the world <laughs> it's been our summer there so that's so, very dramatic did uh so after the gop establishment got behind trump were, were the folks that initially encouraged david to run were they still pushing him to do it they were they were great i mean david was not gonna you know inadvertently run for president so he you know that they i love all the guys that were involved in that and it's a, you know obviously an honor to be considered to mm-hmm. be a third party alternative to to trump and hillary this episode is brought to you in part by beyond ordinary women ministries which prepares christian women for leadership at bow we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, 
or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Um, but I don't. I think a lot of people were disappointed that he decided not to run. But there was it was just not the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean. And- and I mean, there, you got a little, well, you guys have had a couple of ex- bad experiences over the p- past couple of years with this. Like when this came out, a reporter dug into your book and mischaracterized some things that you wrote about being a wife of a deployed soldier overseas. Yeah. What What was that like? Because I can't imagine how infuriating it would be to have something you said taken out of context and, and make you look, try to make you look bad. Yeah, you know what, I, for some reason, I, it was very scary to think about everyone trying to destroy you. Um, And, and here's the thing that, here's the thing, everyone was complaining about, really, we have all of these people in America, and the two that run are these two clowns, Hillary Clinton (laughs) and Donald Trump, is this all we have? And then for one five minute increment, you have a, a guy who... I know I'm biased because I'm married to him, but he's great. He yeah. is a, a good guy. He went to Harvard Law School. He's a constitutional expert. He joined the Army. He's a Bronze Star recipient. You know, an Ivy League educated veteran and a person of integrity. And within five minutes, they they had come out and, you know, try, you try to find dirt on him, obviously. And then instead they, they, you know, absent that they were like, Oh, well he's domineering and he wouldn't let his wife use the internet while she was deployed I and mean, while he was deployed or something like that. And that was a Politico reporter. And it was yeah. it just, it was just a tweet. And, you know, but it was so weird because if you know us at all, David is not domineering and I do not lack for uh, my ability to share my opinion. <laughs> But honestly, like, I was just like, okay, like, that's such a weird, like, that's so obviously not true. I, you know, but it did hurt my feelings at the time. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, like, it was just like, we were, I was losing so much because I was just a mom who wanted to have fun with her kids for a summer before they went to college or whatever. And so like, the whole thing was so hurtful, because you really, really love America. And everybody says they want a, a different alternative. And the moment a person of integrity's name was floated, um, it's like, well, who do you think you are? We're going to, you know, whatever. So it was just like, yeah. it was just a little sobering. Yeah. But well, we they, they create dirt where there is none. It's like, it's like with the, um, Mike Pence where they like <laughs> write all these stories about him not having dinner with another woman or something as if like being loyal to his spouse is a bad thing. And I'm not saying that's what you guys did, but it's just yeah. like, it's a, it's a nothing. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's exactly, exactly, exactly right. Um, now looking back, you also, David, maybe more so than you, um, you know, he's working at National Review, National Review comes out against Trump. Um, and you guys are very vocal about your opinions about not wanting him to be president. And you're both, uh, conservative Republicans, Christians, like, you know, the standard type of person that you think would back whoever the GOP gets behind. Um, but 2016 was different. And I'm um, with you in that I kind of split off from the party and was not supportive of the president myself. Um, and you uh, were so, you know, felt so strongly about this that you decided to write an op-ed and talk about something really awful that happened to you as a kid. You were sexually abused and you wanted to talk about how does it feel looking at this guy running for president who's been accused of a lot of harassment, abuse. Um, so tell me about that decision and why you wanted to go public with that. Well, it was interesting. I had never talked about my childhood abuse with 
my mouth as an adult. So like I told people at the time, um, like when I was like 12, um, and then I just sort of never talked about it. I didn't really think about it. Um, and in the course of going to a counselor, I was trying to describe to him what happened to me, but I was so like traumatized by it. I, I couldn't really like even verbally articulate what had happened. And so he said, why don't you go home? I know that you like to write. Why don't you go home and write it down on a piece of paper and then bring it back in and then I can read it and then we can talk about it through there. So like, that's how traumatized I was about that, um, sexual abuse that was at the hands of a, a preacher. And, uh, so I had never talked about it, but I went home and wrote about it and then I published it in the Washington post. And then, the, <laughs> and then when I went back to my counselor the next week, I just handed him the Washington post piece. Oh my gosh. And he was like, Oh, okay. I think we can deal with this. This is not typically how it's done, but, <laughs> but the reason why I went ahead and published it was because I was, I felt so betrayed by the GOP establishment because I came to like political awareness under like Rush Limbaugh and I used to really respect like James Dobson and focus on the family. And I used to believe the things that our, our leaders said, like I came of age during a time when Dan Quayle was talking about family values and the GOP was pretending to care about things I don't know, women, you know, like, and I used to, you know, I used to really defend the Republicans and say, no, of course, we're not racist. Of course, we're not this. Of course, we're not misogynist. Um, so that was my whole life. And then all of a sudden, we embrace this person who um, really promotes things that were supposedly antithetical to what our party believed. And so I felt so hurt because I had really drunk the Kool-Aid. I really thought that they were serious about their values. And then all of a sudden it was like the, I saw everything more clearly and it was all a charade. The values were a millimeter deep to be discarded, um, you know, when power was at stake. And so I was just really sad. And so I wanted people to know that, um, you know, I think this was I think I wrote that right after the Access Hollywood thing came out mm -hmm. where he, you know, he was a self-described sexual assaulter and a lot of other stuff had come out. Like I could go through a litany of things that Donald Trump had said that should have been deal breakers, but surely GOP men, this would, um, you know, invalidate your support for him. And so I wrote this thing like, okay, y'all, you've got to really seriously consider this because women are not going to appreciate you embracing this cad. Um, and you're going to turn around and you're going to have lost your Republican women support. That's what I thought I was wrong because apparently everybody was fine with it, but I just wanted to send one last, one last plea to my fellow Republicans to please reconsider. Um, and so I wrote the article and I think the headline was like, um, what it's like to experience the 2016 election as a sexual abuse victim or survivor or something. I hate even saying the words because I've still not fully processed it, but, um, that I wanted everyone to at least consider one more time, please don't embrace this person. Instead, cling to your values and trust God, you know, trust that God will make it okay. But, uh, anyway, America went a different way. Well, so now he's now been president for three years. We're, we're already moving on to 2020. Clearly. So, I, you know, you don't have to get too much into it if you don't want to, but how does it feel? How has it felt, you know, watching him take office? How did you feel on election night? You know, I was really, I did not like Hillary Clinton. I would have been super sad for her to be elected too. So, like, there were two very bad options. People are always mm -hmm. like, well, it was a binary choice and you have to choose one or the other. And I live, you know, like, you don't live in reality. You know, you're not very pragmatic. But the third option was maintaining your integrity. Mm -hmm. You do not have to choose of the two options that the people on high hand down to you. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I did not, I would not have been thrilled had Hillary Clinton become president. And at the time we didn't know which one would be worse because goodness, this is like pick your poison here. Um, but uh, anyway, there's this great, you know, quote, you know, when you're choosing between two evils, choose neither. 
Um, so anyway, so when he, when he was elected, I was sad, so sad because I felt like it, the party that I had really dedicated my life to, because I'd been more political than a normal person. Mm-hmm. Um, but the party that I dedicated a, a great deal of my life to was a complete farce. So I quit the Republican party and, uh, you know, so I'm, I guess an independent now, um, and yeah, I just felt pretty, I was pretty despondent. Did you vote in the election? Yeah, I just voted for like a third party. You know, yeah. pe- people would say it's a throwaway vote, but it's not a throwaway vote. I wanted people to know that I voted, mm-hmm. um, and that I went, uh, that I bothered to go to the polls, but that these two options were not viable. Yeah, yeah, same here. I voted for a third party. Um, why do you, what's your assessment of why the GOP did it? I think they were afraid and I think people who came, um, you know, the Clintons were so reviled, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a lot of ways, very rightly so, um, that they just, they wanted to win at all cost, And, uh, and also I think they sort of liked the pugnacious aspect of Trump more than they wanted to admit. So, yeah. Definitely. So you're an independent now. And have you kind of moved away from politics in the midst of all of this? Well, it's super hard to. So like, I think like my, my husband's uncle, Mark, always says, be careful what you get good at, because if you get good at it, that's what you, people want you to do for the rest of your life. And so <laughs> for a long time, I was a political ghostwriter. So I wrote for governors and senators and candidates written on campaign buses and I mean like I've if you look at my my resume it's just full of political candidates but then I literally could not do it because even during the time I was writing a book for somebody who endorsed Trump while David was I mean I was writing two or three books in 2016 for people who were Trump supporters and then David comes out with this very strong never Trump stance and I'm still having to sit with my friends, you know, they're my clients and my friends and, and write their books. And it was very awkward. I found myself at a Trump rally once mm. uh, with one of my clients uh, where he was opening up a speech for, for Trump. And, you know, everyone was like, hey, come up here and get a selfie with Trump. And I was like, oh, uh, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in that. Like, I can't even imagine the level of you know, like I just had all of these conflicting feelings because I was always with these big, huge Trump advocates, people who even endorsed him, spoke at the GOP convention on his behalf, you know. So at mm-hmm. one point, like there was like a Trump campaign plane and that he was paying for and I was on that and I was just like, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. And then when I was once I was in an elevator where people were talking about my husband in the elevator, not really. And they didn't know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's so but you didn't tell them. No, I was so mortified I, I you know you don't want to be like if if i'm working for you my, my job is not to disrupt your life um right. i want to just tell your story and you know move on so i didn't you know i wanted to treat my clients with respect and you know but i did need to move on and choose a different occupational trajectory so i wrote a novel um that i'm going to try to pitch next year i tried to change my my ghostwriting client roster had to change so I couldn't do these um, Republican politicians anymore. I just can't can't yeah. really do it. Um, so I'm just trying to do other things. But it became at a great cost because that's what that's the realm of life that I was in. And so I had to like change agents and give up opportunities. You know, I just can't yeah. do it anymore. So well, and you guys also with David's kind of you're you're a little less public than he is. But I mean, he got a lot of I mean, talk about some of the hateful stuff that got sent your way just for him coming out against Trump. Oh, man, it's just been really sad. Honestly, we have an African American kid, uh, literally African American. She's from Ethiopia. Um, so an American kid adopted from Ethiopia. So, um, that puts a target on our back with the white nationalists who don't like white people raising black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, we've gotten it from both sides. Like originally when we adopted, we got a lot of pushback from leftists who believed that we were raising a conservative daughter 
um, which is true because we're conservatives and obviously parents pass down their values to their children. <laughs> yeah. um, but they said that we were, we were participating in cultural genocide because we were mm. raising a black person with conservative values. But Naomi's from Ethiopia. She should not have the same values as Al Sharpton. You know, that's weird. So like, anyway, you adopt a kid and you raise a kid because they're humans and you, right. you know, you treat the kid anyway. But, uh, so that was really sad. That was originally when the leftists were pushing back on that and adoption, international adoption has, has just become scrutinized really heavily. Mm -hmm. And a lot of reasons for a lot of reasons that were very good, but also that's been unfairly uh, mischaracterized. But um, anyway, so it's been super sad because, you know, you're just people who uh, are, you know, trying to do good things and uh, trying to help, uh, you know, a, a, a child. And then all of a sudden you are under the this political scrutiny. So we got it from the left. And then when Trump rose to power, he sort of energized this white nationalism. And those guys were so much worse than what we'd previously um, experienced. They would take pictures of Naomi off my Facebook page, Photoshop it um, into horrible things. Like they would put her face in Auschwitz chambers and they would mm. Photoshop Donald Trump pulling the gas lit lever. Yeah. They um, would call her, um, uh, well, anyway, awful terms. They would say that we're raising the enemy because we're white people raising black people. That's insane. Yeah. They would just, they call David a cuck because, um, you know, the old English uh, word cuckold where a man is married to someone who has affairs on him. Well, mm -hmm. they would, since I have a black child, um, obviously the only way to get a black child is to have sex with black men. So mm -hmm. they would Photoshop my face over pornographic images as if I was having sex with black men and David is watching and they would call him a cuck conservative. Um, but uh, anyway, so all of that happened. So that was fun. And then and it got worse progressively I mean, like, I literally cannot even... Were you, even feeling un were you feeling unsafe? Yes. We called the cops. Um, things happened at the house. We got letters to the house. Um, yeah, we were even on that list. What is the name of that Florida bomber who sent oh, yeah. bombs to, like, Hillary Clinton and Robert De Niro mm -hmm. and yeah, all, I remember all that. the Trump critics? We were on that list. So that was fun. The FBI came here to talk to us about that and uh, to make sure we, we, they went through our mail and they told our neighbors about it in case they accidentally got any packages for us. So that freaked out our neighbors, you know, in this very Republican stronghold of Williamson County, Tennessee, we had to go and explain to our neighbors why we were on the list with Hillary Clinton as possible bomb recipients. Um, so that was fun. Um, someone, anyway, yeah, it, it, I won't even, if, if I detailed some of the harassment that we got, I I'm afraid that it would start again. Um, mm -hmm. but really bad things happened that really were very intrusive on our lives. Um, we've gotten threats, you know, like I would call them at least death aspirations. Uh, people who say things like I'm a veteran, I've been trained in, you know, weaponry and I know how to use it. And so you need to stop using your voice for Trump. I mean, to speak out against Trump. So like I would get emails like that and, you know, it's just like, mm. Oh my gosh, what on earth? Why is everyone so intense about this? But there's this unique strain of white nationalism that's just energized right now. And they have really targeted us. And it's not, it's not a huge group, right? But it's like a very loud group and a scary group. I don't know. I want to say it's small. I've always said it's small. But then when you see like Michelle Malkin embracing these white nationalists mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, there's this uh, guy on Newsmax TV who was like saying, you know, he was comparing like David and Michelle Malkin pick sides. You can either win with Michelle Mark Malkin, <laughs> the fighter, or David or lose politely with David French, who's known for civility or something. And you're like, what is wrong with people? Like, if you if you work for Newsmax and you're choosing someone who's al who's aligning with white nationalism, that's no joke. And so I used to say, oh, it's just this very small strain. Perhaps it is, but the president of the United States gives them cover and gives them energy. So like, mm -hmm. I I'm no longer denigrating the size and scope of them. Yeah, I um back in the old days, I used to love Michelle Malkin when I was a young conservative. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's been a while since I was a fan. I just, uh, 
she kind of went in a direction that I was not headed. So, yeah. Um, so, but outside of, and, and I know we're going to be wrapping up soon, but you know, when you take this stand, you still are going to have friends, um, that are Trump supporters. I have friends and acquaintances and people that work for the administration. And it's kind of a weird area to stand. Um, how have those kinds of relationships been? Do you still have those friendships um, with folks that don't agree with you? Oh, yeah. Nobody agrees with us. I mean, literally, we're like, I live in the most Republican county, uh, probably in Tennessee, uh, maybe in America. Um, and it's lovely and all the people are great and all of my family voted for Trump and, uh, yeah, we're just, uh, we're loners here in, in Tennessee as, um, you know, being, we're never Trumpers, but, uh, you know, here frequently you just don't even meet people who are Trump critical. Um, thankfully, like at our church, there are a lot of people who are, you know, lamenting what has happened and lamenting his character and probably share more of our values than not. But, you know, any random person you meet is going to be a Trump supporter. And I don't I don't disparage them. I I feel like it's very it was a very complicated, difficult choice to make. Um, and mm-hmm. everyone tells you you must vote is your American. It is your American responsibility to vote. Um, and people feel like they were doing the right thing by trying to choose the lesser of two evils. And I get mm-hmm. that. But I think over the past few years the evidence has just mounted that this is not a tenable situation and that this is not good for our country. So I hope in 2020 people will have sobered up. I, you know, I don't expect that they will, but I hope that they will have. Do you find people respect you even though you don't agree with them? I think so. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Like you're able to be, you're able to be civil though. Cause I mean, you, you mentioned David being civil and I think that is one of his great, uh, characteristics is that he will have a conversation with anybody. He's willing to talk with anybody, debate. Um, and that's kind of characteristic of his new venture too, what he's doing with Jonah Goldberg with the dispatch. I think they're both sort of like that. Um, and so, I, I mean, I just love that about you guys and just being able to have actual conversations instead of writing people off. Yeah, well, politics isn't the most important thing, you know, and so right. and, and everybody has lives and no one is paying attention to politics at this microscopic level. And people do not hear the same things that we hear. So like I was at the gym with um, Naomi and this woman was talking to us about how, how Trump was the most Christian president we've ever had. And I literally could not maintain <laughs> my facial expression. I, no. a, a, a look no of incredulity crept across my face. And I was like, how can you possibly say that? And she was like, name one thing that he did that's not Christian. And I was like, well, he said immigrants from um, various countries, including the country from which my, my daughter came, um, were, you know, they were from shithole countries. And she was like, no, he didn't. You know, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, we don't even have the same set of facts. So You're right. I think you're right. So many people like us, like being more just like inside the political circle, like you and I have a wealth of more like just knowledge and things that we hear that maybe a normal person that's just kind of watching the news nightly isn't hearing. Right. Or they're listening to a different type of news. And mm-hmm. so um, they get fed all of this stuff from people they think they can trust. And, and, and the lady at the gym also pretended to not know about the Access Hollywood stuff. So whatever. But um, I do believe that, it, you know, people have lives. They're not paying attention to politics at the microscopic level like we are. So I give everyone a lot of leeway in it. But I feel like by now, his failings his own words have been broadcasted far and wide um i feel like there's less wiggle room now now it feels Mm -hmm. like people need to really sit down and evaluate is this the person for whom i want to cast my vote it should be Mm -hmm. a very sobering experience um so i hope things have changed but i i love every person that I, you know, that all the people in my community, I love all of like my family members who are Trump supporters. Um, I just think that there's a better way and that you should walk in a different path than the one that is trod by Donald Trump. So I try, I try to say it as frequently and as kindly and as clearly as possible. And no one really listens to me. So I'm, (laughs) I'm okay with that. 
Well, I think you've I think you've made some really great points. Really quickly, um, what made you guys decide to adopt? I'm just curious about the backstory on that. Well, we had two biologicals um, that were two years apart. Blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, they made good grades. They you know got along wonderfully. Um, David and I, um, he'd always wanted to adopt, but I was apprehensive about it because of you know it's just a lot of work and you're inviting just a lot of unknown factors into your home. And so, but in the, you know, like the Bible says to take care of widows and orphans. So like that religion is, is, is really about taking care of people who are weak and people who don't have a chance. And so God is about the underdog. And so I, but when David and I were thinking about adopting, um, you know, he approached me with it and I was like, look, we have a good marriage we have good kids. Everything is great. Why would I, you know, why would we want to potentially threaten that? And he said, well, what kind of family should adopt? Should the families with bad marriages adopt? Should the families with poorly behaved kids adopt? You know, and I was like, oh my gosh, like it was really convicting mm-hmm. um, because we've been given so much. And so I, I just, it changed my heart. Like that one question that he posed to me just changed my heart. And, um, so we decided to adopt, we didn't have a ton of money. Um, so we had to save and, you know, we tried to figure out the best way to do it uh, through a very reputable agency because it's very important to, uh, you know, do it in the right way that culturally that's culturally sensitive and uh, tries to keep families together. But sometimes there's millions of, of children who are, who are orphans and they're just languishing. Some of them die. And so we decided to go, um, through this one agency and Ethiopia was open at the time. And we went through that route and we asked for two boys and we got one girl and, uh, she is beautiful and I can't imagine our life without her. And, uh, she's so lovely and we're very thankful for her and uh, she's just changed our lives in the most wonderful way. And we're very thankful for the decision to do it. And how long ago was that when you, when she came over? She just turned 12 this week and we got her when she was two and a half. Oh, well, I'm so glad. All right, Nancy, just a couple end of the podcast questions. Um, do you have any role models, inspirations, or people that you kind of look to? I honestly, I'm so sorry. I should have like prepared for that question. <laughs> That's um, okay. Yeah, no, you know, I, when I first started out, I really, uh, I loved Peggy Noonan's writing mm-hmm. and um, the way that she was able to sort of capture the heart and the political soul of, of a moment. Um, but, um, and now, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to be a novelist. So I read all kinds of novels. I, I'm reading Stephen King now and uh, trying to get this, the art of storytelling down. So I've sort of, my, my role models have sort of switched. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what books, podcasts, or TV shows can you recommend to the listeners? Okay. I, I don't typically listen to very many podcasts. I listen to novels because of the new trajectory of my life. But mm-hmm. I listened to one podcast in particular, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. There's one episode, and it's it's about parapraxis, which is the fancy word for Freudian slips. And mm-hmm. it's about the one song Elvis couldn't sing. And oh, you interesting. must listen to it. And um, it's about the song, Are You Lonesome Tonight? It's, uh-huh. a, it's about that song and about how there are like 10 known recordings of that song um, where he performed it live and how he messed up every single recording. And so they evaluate his Freudian slips um, according to what was happening in his life. And it is devastating and beautiful and poignant. And listen to the whole podcast. Do not turn it off before it ends. Go all the way to the last sentence and then thank me because you okay will, you will love it so much it's beautiful i'm gonna listen to it like as soon as we hang up just you're so gonna you know. be so happy <laughs> everyone's gonna be just owe me such a big such such an amazing podcast no that's it. awesome to get like a specific episode because you know so many podcasts you're like well i don't know like are they all the episodes gonna be good so that's a good I this love is that this suggestion. is it this is the the platonic form of podcast um okay so books um what are you reading right now I just finished Stephen King's The Outsider, okay. um, which is amazing. Um, I am constantly reading because I swim, 
and every, I have a waterproof iPod. So I swim, um, one hour a day. So that means that I'm listening to one hour of a book a day. And so I'm constantly reading and I read pretty much, um, all fiction. So I just finished, um, the Stephen King book, the outsider. And then I read, um, Gene Thornton, who is no malice on the new Jesus is King album. He's a part of clips. Um, he's a, a rapper, um, that Kanye brought in for that. I read his memoir called wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's wow. ne- naked is how Tennesseans say that. Um, but it was really amazing because I wanted to find out the backstory of his spiritual journey as well. Um, I'm reading Ruth Ware's The Turn of the Key right now. I've just finished A Clockwork Orange. I just, I'm constantly reading. You're all over the place. I know. It's the most eclectic nightstand that you'll ever see. Um, what Can you send me the link to the iPod that you use? Because I was looking for something to use in the water and I, I couldn't figure out what it was, what I was supposed to order. <laughs> yes. Underwater audio. It's amazing. It's just like okay. listening in your car. Yeah, because I actually need to swim because I have all these back issues, but I hate swimming because it's so boring. But I feel like I would do it if I knew that I could listen to something while yeah. I was doing it. <laughs> yeah, you can get a book. You know, your average book is 10 hours. So you buy one book, you get 10, 10 days of swimming. It's great. If you That's buy awesome. like a Stephen King book, you know, it's like 30 hours. Um, now, do you do um, like all freestyle or how does your swim workout work? I'm just curious. Yeah, I do mostly freestyle just because I get to a rhythm and I just, I could swim. I think I could swim forever. I don't know what it is about me. I just, I just get into my, my book. So once I was reading like it and um, that was a terrifying <laughs> book and I was swimming fast. Uh, so, the, <laughs> so the clown wouldn't get me, but, um, but sometimes I switch it up, but most of the time I'm not, I'm not actually that, uh, proficient in other strokes. So um, I think maybe if I was like really a great swimmer, I would, you know, I would tell you, well, I do 20 minutes like this, but really I just jump in the pool and swim and then jump out an hour later and, you know, totally immersed, more um, immersed in the water, but more immersed in my book. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, Nancy. Well, I will let you go. We definitely went over, (laughs) but I think it was a great conversation. I had so many things to ask you. So thank you so much for entertaining all of those questions. Yeah, it was so great to talk to you. Thanks, Erica. Well, thanks for listening to my conversation with Nancy today, guys. If you've been listening, if you enjoyed this episode, will you head over to iTunes, search Worth Your Time, and leave me a quick one-sentence rating and review. It helps so much in getting people to find the podcast there. Thanks so much for listening. If this is your first time, I hope you'll join us again next week. Have a good one. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.